This morning I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 11. I'll be reading verses 12 to 21. And once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As this morning, I will attempt to preach in your hearing by the Spirit's power a sermon that's entitled, The Day Jesus Cursed. The Day Jesus Cursed. Mark chapter 11, I'll begin reading at verse 12. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. There are some stories of Jesus in the Bible that seem to catch us off guard. The biblical actions of Jesus collide with the conjured creation of Jesus that's been crafted by our culture. There are many people in our culture that perceive Jesus as nothing more than a meek and mild religious teacher. One who never gets upset, one who never raises his voice or intensifies his demeanor. And then we come to a story like I just read in your hearing. And it's a story like that where Jesus crushes the pansy perception that's been painted of him. It is Mark who says that upon leaving the village of Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Maybe Jesus and the disciples slept in the day after the triumphal entry into the holy city of Jerusalem. Maybe they were running just a little bit late, hurrying themselves out the door. Regardless, I think it was probably Jesus who said to Martha, now don't worry about cooking breakfast for us. We'll just pick something up along the way. Mark says that they were leaving Bethany. Uh, Bethany was that village located about two miles east of the holy city of Jerusalem. Uh, Bethany was the home of Martha and Mary and their brother Lazarus. I just got a holy hunch that anytime Jesus had to visit Jerusalem, 
Mary, Martha, and Lazarus insisted that he and the boys stay with them and they would not take no for an answer. I think that on this particular day, uh, Jesus had retreated to the home of his three favorite siblings. And that next morning, he woke up and he said to the disciples, now quickly, let's get out of the house. Let's go down the road. We've got to get to the sacred city. Now, Martha, don't cook anything for us. We'll just pick something up along the way. Mark does tell us that Jesus was hungry. This speaks to the humanity of Jesus. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. He is the God-man. He is one who's not merely a good man, but he is the God-man. He's not one who became God. He's not merely a godly guy. He is the one and only God-man. I realize this is a hard concept for us to understand, but it's true. It's not true because it's simply in the Bible. No, it's in the Bible because it's true. It really is the reality that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Most people struggle theologically with one or the other side of this equation. I think people outside the church struggle with the divinity of Jesus. If lost people think about Jesus at all, they regard him as a mere man. Maybe a cut above the average man, but still just a mere mortal. Oh, but for those of us inside the church, those of us in the faith, those of us who are in Christ, I think that we do not struggle so much with the divinity of Jesus, but we struggle perhaps with the full humanity of Jesus. Oh no, we believe that Jesus is fully God. We understand this, we cling to this, for he is the one who healed the leper. He is the one that walked on the water. He is the one that healed the sick and raised the dead. We have no problem understanding the divinity of Jesus, but it's the humanity of Jesus that sometimes leaves us scratching our heads. We think to ourselves, how is it that the one who flung the stars into space could then subject himself to humanity, come to earth, and get sore muscles in his shoulders and back because of swinging a hammer in a carpenter shop all day long. How is it that the one who knows all things exhaustively, he knows everything perfectly well, yet he submitted himself to humanity, subjected himself uh, to human form, and he had to learn how to crawl and how to walk as an infant and as a toddler. Oh, this one who really... uh spoke the world into existence, subjected himself to humanity, and after preaching all day long the next day, this voice of his was tired and hoarse. The one who does not need anything, for he is God all by himself. Yet when he came to earth, he had need for rest and water and food. And when his stomach was empty, it began to rumble. And on this day, Jesus is suffering from an empty stomach. He is suffering because he's hungry. And as he is leaving the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he says, we will pick something up along the way. It's in this condition that Jesus looks down the road and he sees a fig tree that has leaves on it. I've been told that there are fig trees all over Israel. There are some fig tree farmers but there are a lot of fig trees that are just along the side of the road a fig tree 
can produce figs for 300 to 400 years. That's a mighty long time. In the Israeli diet, the figs are a staple of Palestinian cuisine. Everybody who is raised in Israel knows about figs and fig trees. The cycle of a fig tree goes something like this. In the winter months, that fig tree loses its leaves. But in the spring of the year, those leaves come back. Now, the harvest time for figs is late summer, early fall. But even in the early spring, when the fig tree has leaves, it's not uncommon for there to be small figs that begin to bud on that fig tree, figs that are edible and some would say even tastier than the ripe figs at the end of the season. When Jesus looks up from a distance, that fig tree looks healthy. It's in leaf, so he thinks to himself, there must be figs on that tree. He goes up, and upon closer examination, Jesus discovers that there are no figs on the fig tree. It is out of season. It is the spring of the year. It's not late summer, and it's certainly not early fall. I mean, you wouldn't expect to find those ripe figs, but you, you, you might expect to find some of those small edible figs. And Jesus becomes concerned. There's a look of frustration that's etched across his brow. He speaks directly at the fig tree. He doesn't look at anybody else. He doesn't look at the other disciples. His eyes are locked on that shrub. And Jesus says with a defiant demeanor in his voice. May no one ever eat figs from you again. There was awkward silence, my friends, because Jesus had just blasted a tree. He's not talking to a person. He's not cursing an animal. He just cursed a shrub. What's going on? Did Jesus wake up on the wrong side of the mat? Did, did he have a bad day? I mean, everybody's entitled to a bad day. Is Jesus just a little stressed out? Because after all, he did enter Jerusalem for the very last time of his life. And, and on yesterday, the crowd cheered for him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But certainly Jesus knows that by week's end, those who cheer for him will jeer for him. And they will demand, crucify him, crucify him. Oh, perhaps Jesus is stressed out. Maybe, maybe it's the hunger talking. Maybe Jesus is hangry, you know, hungry anger. Y'all know what I'm talking about, guys. Sometimes, men, we get hangry because we're so hungry that we just get ornery. And ladies, don't laugh too much because y'all get hangry too. And sometimes we get so frustrated, so upset because we're hungry and that hunger spins us into doing things and saying things that maybe we wouldn't always do or always say. What is going on in this passage that causes Jesus to curse the fig tree? All these questions are left dangling and dancing in our minds. Mark doesn't answer any of them. No, not one. Jesus and the disciples continue on their two-mile journey from Bethany to Jerusalem. As they make their way into the city, the streets are teeming with people. Everybody has converged on Jerusalem because it's Passover week. The 
central figure of Jerusalem is the temple, the temple mount, and it looks beautiful. It always looks beautiful, but especially during Passover, all the gold and silver has been polished. It is like a diamond in the desert of Israel. It is as if the the energy, the excitement, the enthusiasm that is in all the streets is cascading down the Temple Mount, coming out of the Holy of Holies. It's as if that everybody is so excited to be there. Why? Because it's Passover. And Passover is that annual Jewish festival that commemorated the great Exodus event whereby God delivered the Israelite forefathers from Egyptian captivity. If there's any week on the Jewish calendar, it is this week for people to remember how good God is and how worthy he is of our worship and our praise. And so people would converge onto that sacred city and they would celebrate for an entire week and they would worship the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They would love God with everything that's inside of them and love their neighbor as themselves. This was a moment, this was a week, this was a celebration, this was a festivity where worship of God ought to be at the forefront of everybody's minds and this is the one annual trip that everybody made oh there were other feasts there were other festivals and there were some big ones on the Jewish calendar but this one this one was the big one where most people came to worship the Lord and when you try to discover how many people are Stuffing the streets of Jerusalem in this Passover week, it's hard to guesstimate. The numbers range quite drastically. But I think it would be safe to say that at these Passovers around this time in human history, there's about a million people that are in Jerusalem. That's a lot of folks. A million individuals, and they're all there. Now, During this Passover week at the temple, the temple was always busy with activity. There were two things that every Jewish family had to do during Passover week. One was to make the proper sacrifice of the right animal, maybe a dove or a lamb or an oxen. And the second thing that every Jewish family had to do was to pay the annual temple tax. In an effort to be user-friendly, the temple had developed a program A program that said, uh, listen, don't worry about bringing the proper animal. We'll just sell you the right animal. You can purchase the right animal right here on the temple complex, and then you can take it inside, give it to the priest, and that priest will offer the appropriate sacrifice for you and for your family. It could be a couple of doves. It could be a lamb. It could be an oxen, whatever it may be. And, and, And don't you worry about it. You just get to this great city of Jerusalem on time, and we will take care of the rest. When you think about it, that's quite convenient, don't you think? It's hard to travel even in these days, let alone in the first century. Can you imagine having to remember everything? I mean, when you travel today, when you go on vacation, you've got to remember all your clothes. You've got to remember all your toiletries. You've got to get everything for the children. And, And when the children are younger, they've got a lot of things to remember, a lot of things to get. You've got to get all of the electronic devices and all the recharging cords of those electronic devices because the last thing you want is in the middle of a road trip for that electronic device to go down and you not have the capacity to recharge it. And you got to remember all the games and all the movies and all the videos. You've got to remember everything that's needed for the trip. You got to get some spending cash. Uh, You got to get a couple other things that you just might need for the trip. 
And the last thing you want to have to remember are a couple of doves or a lamb or an oxen. I mean, that would be a hindrance and a headache, don't you think? I mean, if you got to cart everything else, and then in addition to that, you got you to gotta bring some animals. I mean, that, that would be a big nuisance. So the temple, the temple really, really helped you out. Very accommodating, very convenient. Furthermore, if you brought your favorite lamb from the family farm, that lamb had to undergo inspection. And a high priest, or a priest, I'm sorry, a priest had to inspect that animal. And that priest could declare that your animal was blemished. And if your animal was blemished, don't worry. You can purchase this additional animal at an overpriced, underused uh, accommodation. You, you can purchase this other animal for uh, your convenience. Now, now, last year's price is probably lower than this year's price. So you probably need to bring a little bit extra money. After all, the temple has to make their own profit. And so uh, you have the opportunity to purchase one of these animals. So leave your favorite lamb or dove or oxen or whatever. Leave that at home We'll take care of everything. Once again, that's convenient. But there's a downside. A sacrifice is supposed to be a sacrifice. It's actually supposed to cost you something. It costs more than just a, a few dollars. After all, I don't think you get very uh, emotionally attached to an animal that you just purchased uh, there at the temple complex and you lead it about five to ten steps, give it to the priest for him to then take it into the court and execute it. It's not really a sacrifice. That's just mere convenience. It's estimated that during Passover week, a quarter of a million lambs were executed. 250,000. That means that the temple complex sounded like a stockyard and it smelled like a barnyard as people made their way up you would think that they are getting their praise on and worshiping the lord but instead you hear the lambs and you hear all of the chatter that's going on in addition to all of that people had to pay their annual temple tax so once again as a way to be user-friendly the temple had another program. And the program was, we will establish a bunch of kiosks all over the temple mount. And you can go and exchange your currency for the right currency. After all, there are travelers that have been coming in and you are all from all over the uh, Roman Empire. And in order for you to pay the annual temple tax, you had to have the correct currency. And of course, you may not have the correct currency. So you had to take it and exchange it. And of course, there would be a, a slight small exchange rate. And those exchange rates were not regulated from one vendor to the next. So somebody on the southeast corner may have a different exchange rate than a vendor on the northwest corner and you know the jewish people they would want to negotiate the deal so they get the best bang for their buck right and so uh in, in the process they are talking about money and they're getting kind of amped up about their conversation about money they're thinking that somebody is trying to take advantage of them when so and so over there has a much better exchange rate than you have and there's a great deal of animosity and a great deal of fervor that's going on in this conversation and jesus walks up to this entire chaotic scene and Jesus goes ballistic. Jesus goes up in a fit of righteous indignation and he begins to overturn all the tables of the money changers. 
All those vendors, all those kiosks, he begins to overturn them. He uh, begins to scatter their chairs and their tables. Their coins are flying everywhere. In fact, I can imagine that he takes those merchants by the nap of the neck and he sends them flying face first into the dirt. It is John in his gospel who says that Jesus formed whip a whip out of cords and he began to drive out all those animals. It is Mark in our version who says Jesus did not allow anybody to carry merchandise through the temple courts. The temple courts was a place for worship. It was a place for praise. It was a place to remember how good God is. And in this moment, Jesus is so defiant. He's so upset that he refuses anybody to carry merchandise. The word merchandise means a jar or vessel. Can you imagine the brute strength of Jesus? He personally stiff arms individuals that try to pass. You you coming this way? Not today. You're not bringing that. Don't you even think about coming in here with that junk. You're not bringing that. Oh, you want to bow up? Come on now. Can you imagine Jesus in this moment? This is not the Jesus that we usually fathom. This is not the Jesus that we usually visualize. But in this moment, Jesus single-handedly with brute strength said, you're not coming, not through here, not with that mess. Peter, James, and John, they said, we're with him. Yeah, we're with that guy. Woo, that was awesome. And then Jesus begins to teach and preach. He quotes from Isaiah and Jeremiah. My house is to be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. The religious establishment began to hate him even more. They continued the plot on how they might kill him at nightfall. Jesus and the disciples left the sacred city of Jerusalem. They went back to Bethany. I'm assuming back to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And as the disciples are laying down trying to sleep, they cannot catch a wink of sleep because they're trying to process everything that just happened that day. Everything from the cursing of the fig tree to the temple tantrum. I mean, everything in between. They're trying to process everything that Jesus did that day. The next morning, they wake up. Jesus says... Rise and shine, we got to get back to Jerusalem. They go the same road, the same path, and as they're walking, the disciples notice that the fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before had withered. For to say that it withered does not mean that it merely lost its leaves. It means that it rotted from the ground up. And it's Peter who says, Rabbi, look, The fig tree you cursed has withered. Friend, I find it extremely interesting that it is only Mark who bookends the cleansing of the temple with a reference to the cursing of the fig tree. It is only Mark who does it in that manner. And I think that he does it that way on purpose to communicate that both stories help to interpret each other. Jesus expects fig trees to produce figs. Jesus expects the temple to produce worshipers. From a distance, both the fig tree and the temple looked healthy. But upon closer examination as Jesus got up close and personal he realized 
that the fig tree, though it looked good from a distance, was far from good. It was not producing figs. In the same manner, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, the temple looked beautiful. It looked as if it would be a place that would house the worship and prayer and praise unto the Lord. But upon closer examination, as he got closer to it, it was not producing worshipers. It was producing a scene of pandemonium chaos. The fig tree would say that it's out of season. There are good reasons of why the fig tree isn't producing figs. In the same way the temple would tell you, well, there are good reasons why we're not producing worshipers. We've got some programs to keep up. I think both of these stories help to interpret each other. It would be unthinkable for a fig tree to say to its creator, I'm not going to produce figs any longer. Fig trees produce an enormous amount of figs. I mean, buckets and buckets of figs. They produce them for hundreds and hundreds of years. It would be totally unacceptable for a fig tree to say to its creator, you know, I'm a little bit too young to produce any figs. I'm not as old as some of the mature fig trees. I can't do as much as they do. I don't have as many resources as they have. So I'm really too young to produce figs. I'm kind of out of season. It would be equally inappropriate for a fig tree to say to its creator, you know, I'm a little bit too old. I've produced thousands and thousands of fig trees. It's time for me to retire. It's time for some young sap to come and to, uh, to take my place. After all, I've been doing this for 100 years. I've been doing this for 300 years. I've, I've put in my time. I've done my job. So, so creator, I, I'm a little bit out of season because I'm a little bit too old. It'd be equally inappropriate for a fig tree to say to its creator, Let's just be honest, I, I just don't feel like producing figs. Do you know the conditions that I have in order to produce figs? I mean, I am here under the sweltering heat of the Palestinian sun. The east wind is constantly blowing. And that sand is so gritty. You don't really expect me to produce fruit in these conditions, do you? I'm out of season. I'm too young. I'm too old. Things are not conducive no fig tree in its right mind would say anything like that to its creator in a similar way no person ought to say to its creator you don't expect me to produce fruit in my life do you i'm out of season i'm out of touch do you realize all that's going on in my life right now it would be inappropriate for a person to say to its creator You know, I'm really too young to do anything good for the kingdom of God. I don't have the maturity level. I don't have the resources as some other people that are here in uh, the faith family. I, I don't have everything that they have. So really, I'm just too young. If you give me a little bit more time, let me season a little bit, let me mature a little bit, then later on, then I'll produce a bunch of, of fruit for you. Oh, friend, it would be very inappropriate for a person To say to his or her creator, you know, I'm a little bit too old to produce any fruit anymore. Why don't you leave it for some of the young saps that are coming up? 
I mean, they really have a lot of promise. I, I've been doing this for a hundred years. I, I've been in this church. I've been here at this place. I've been in the faith. I've been in the kingdom of Christ for forever. And I've been doing a lot of great things. Let me list off all the figs that I produce. Let me list off all the things that I have done. And certainly, oh creator, you understand that it's time for me to step back and take it easy just a little bit. Oh friend, it would be inappropriate for a person to say to his creator, you don't really expect me to produce fruit in this season, do you? You know all that I have going on right now? I mean, I listen, I, I've got some issues in the marriage and I've got some issues with parenting. I've got some personal problems. There are deadlines at work that are overwhelming and insurmountable and that things are happening to me uh, that I can't really explain and I can't really justify. And so if you're putting something else on my plate for me to do, I mean, you've got to cut me some slack. You've got to give me a break because I'm just out of season. I mean, maybe later on when things get easier, when things get lighter, then I'll be able to do something for you. But right now, I can't do a thing. I know I'm supposed to be a worshiper. I know I'm supposed to produce the fruit of prayer and praise. But, but look, I, I just can't do it right now because of everything else that's running through my mind and everything else that's occupying my heart so God you must understand I am out of season friend that'd be inappropriate it would be as inappropriate for a child of God to say to the God of the child I'm out of season it would be as inappropriate as a fig tree saying to its creator I can't produce figs So then that begs the question, what is the fruit that Jesus expects and dare I say demands out of your life? If Jesus gets so upset because a fig tree doesn't produce figs, if he gets so upset that he turns over tables and chairs and uh, and tells worshipers that they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, it looks like the marketplace in here, then what does Jesus expect from us? What is the fruit that we're supposed to bear I'm glad that you ask. It's the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 who says that your life and mine are to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those nine marks ought to characterize your life and mine, ought to characterize our relationships, our business dealings, our marriage, our parenting, our interactions in church and out of church. We ought to be uh, characterized by those nine marks. This morning, I wonder, how are we doing? It's not that those are nine fruits of the Spirit. There's one fruit of the Spirit. Those are Nine different marks that characterize the fruit. It'd be like holding up an apple and saying, this apple is red and round, it's shiny, it's delicious. All those words describe one and the same piece of fruit. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things, there there is nothing else. That ought to dominate our lives and be demonstrated from our lives. And furthermore, we cannot say of the fruit of the Spirit, well, that's not my gift. Uh, No uh, Christian can say, I don't have the gift of patience. Just not wired that way. Friend, patience is not a gift. Patience is part of the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience. 
So we can't say, well, I'm just not wired that way. I just don't have that. That's just not in my makeup. I don't have that gift. It's not a gift. It's a fruit of the Spirit. That ought to characterize your life as husband, as wife, as mom, as dad, as child, as parent, as boss, as co-worker, as neighbor, as coach, in whatever capacity that you have, that ought to characterize your life and mine before a watching world. How are we doing? It's John the Baptist who says that we ought to demonstrate the fruit of repentance in our lives. That whenever we sin, we ought to immediately repent. The word repent means the changing of mind. It means the turning of a direction. That if you're going one way, to repent is to do an about face. If you're walking towards sin, to repent of that sin is to turn around and walk in the other direction towards the Savior. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, he says regarding our sinfulness, he says that we ought to put to death everything that is not glorifying to God. We ought to put to death sexual immorality and greed and envy and malice and slander. We ought to put to death. That word put to death means mortify, slay. It means to kill. It means to slaughter. He's very graphic in his terms. That's what it means to have the fruit of repentance in your life. When you say, Lord, I am going to slaughter this sin that so easily entangles me. I'm going to put to death the sin that caught me last night, last week, last month, last year. It's not going to keep on recovering occurring in my life because I'm going to put it to death. I'm going to slaughter it by the power of Christ. That's the fruit of repentance. So friends, how are we doing on that? Also, it's the Apostle Paul who says that we ought to demonstrate a fruit of righteousness. Philippians chapter 1 verse 11, that in you is the righteous fruit of Jesus Christ. Fruit of righteousness. Righteousness means innocence. And the innocence is declared upon you and it ought to be demonstrated by you. That when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, there's a great sweet swap of salvation that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that, that God declares upon you the innocence of Jesus Christ, that he clothes you with the righteousness of Christ so that when God the Father looks at you, he sees God the Son. When God the Father looks at you, he sees the innocent, righteous works of Jesus Christ. Hello, hallelujah. I mean, that is a amen moment for God to look at me and see Jesus living in me and uh, draping over me that's great so righteousness is declared upon me but it's also demonstrated by me in light of the innocent standing that I have in Christ then I want to do right things I want to live in righteous ways before God in a watching world so the watching world has every right to look at me and evaluate the fruit of my living do I look like Jesus? Do I act like Jesus? Am I talking like him? Am I preoccupied about the things that preoccupy him? So does it matter how we live? Uh, yeah. Does it matter what we do? Uh, yeah. Why? It's not to earn salvation, but it's in gratitude of your salvation. So how you live demonstrates righteousness, which the apostle Paul calls the fruit of righteousness. Once again, it's the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans who gives us another fruit. It's the fruit of 
evangelistic conversion. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 verse 13, how I long to come and see you so that I may have a harvest among you like I've had among other Gentiles. What's he talking about? He's talking about a harvest of people. He's talking about the saving of souls. He's talking about the fruit of evangelism. He's saying, I am longing to come and visit with you. Why? So we can sit down and talk about Jesus. I'm longing to come so we can talk one on many and one on one. So we can really uh, share the claims of Christ and talk to lost people about salvation that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I long for a harvest among you. I long for us to reach many, many people in the surrounding area because of who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. I long for a righteous harvest of souls. This past week, I came across two very astounding statistics. The first one is this. Um, In a recent survey, it was noted that 57% of evangelicals say that there's another way to God outside of Jesus. 57% of evangelicals. And I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, I'm glad I'm not an evangelical. I'm just a Baptist. <laughs> no, no, listen. As Baptists, we are evangelicals. Evangelicals are, are gospel people. They're, they're the they're the, the Bible people. They go across denominations. And so uh, evangelical, that's who we are. We stand on the authority of God's word, upon the sufficiency of the gospel, upon the accomplished work of what Jesus Christ has done. All those things are tenets to what it means to be um, um, evangelistic and, and to be evangelical. And so this is who we are. It's the conservative thread of Christianity. Let me say it again. It's the conservative thread of Christianity. In the conservative thread of the Christian faith 57% of the yehoots that are in our pews are saying there's another way to God outside of Jesus oh my Lord have mercy on us friend let me remind you that Jesus declares I'm the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me nobody can get to God outside of Jesus Christ some people wonder why is it in our denomination that baptisms are on the decline I can tell you if you got more than half the people that actually believe there's another way to God outside of Jesus then why waste your time in evangelism in the hopes of conversion so that somebody will walk through the waters of baptism Oh, my friend, the only way for a dead person to become alive in Christ is through faith, explicit faith, only faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. There's another stat that was even more astounding. I came across this that 58% of millennials, let me stop right there. To all the millennials, I need to apologize to you because like we whip on you guys all the time. <laughs> and I'm sorry about that, but a lot of it y'all bring on yourself, all right? So 58% of millennials in America say that it is wrong to do evangelism. It is morally and ethically wrong for me to impose my religious beliefs Upon you. 58% of millennials 
would say, it's okay for you to be a Christian. No problem there. But don't go out and try to win anybody else to your Christianity. Because it's morally and ethically wrong, whether you are Christian or Muslim or Jew, for you to impose any of your beliefs upon somebody else. Um, Once again, if we want to wonder why are baptisms down, why is church growth down across the denomination, across Southern Baptists, and not just Southern Baptists, but all Christians, can I tell you maybe a reason why is because 58% of millennials say, I am not going to talk about Jesus to anybody. It's okay for me, but I'm not going to say it's all right for you. Listen, my friend, if Jesus is the only way, he's the only serum of salvation, you know what's wrong? What's wrong is for us to be quiet and not say anything about it and for lost people to die without Jesus and go to a very real place called hell both now and forevermore. Listen, that's not my idea. That's straight out of scripture that if somebody dies without explicit faith in Jesus Christ, they go to a very real place called hell and it's the meanest thing on the planet for us to think that we know the truth and we're not going to tell anybody about it. We cannot be more unloving than to know the truth and not talk about it. Friend, what does Jesus expect of us? What is the fruit that he wants? What fruit does he want in your life and mine? What fruit does Jesus require of us? Listen, he, he wants us to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in all of our relationships He he wants us to have the fruit of repentance whenever by his spirit's power sin is brought to our mind and to our attention. He wants us to have the fruit of righteousness. Not only are we declared innocent in God's sight, but we demonstrate that right living before a watching world. And Jesus knows that he has given us the awesome task of sharing the gospel so that lost sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ. And apart from personal faith in Jesus, people die and they don't go to heaven. They go to a very real place called hell. So friend, how are we doing on that? When was the last time that you shared your personal gospel story with somebody when was the last time that you intentionally tried to lead somebody to Christ was it last night was it last week last month last year ever you do realize that the apostle Paul says that you are the temple of God If you are a born-again believer, you house the Holy Spirit of God and you are the temple of God. And if Jesus were to walk up and down the hallways of this temple, what would he find? If Jesus were to walk in the corridors of my temple, what would he find? If Jesus were to walk through the hallways of your personal temple, what would he find? What would he find in your mind? What would he find in your heart? What would he find in your checkbook? What would he find on your calendar? What would he find? I think he would find a lot of programs. I think he'd find a lot of events. I think he'd find a lot of people that love sports and sex and shopping and finances and family and children and careers. But what would he find? Would he 
he find fruit or frivolous living? Would he find praise or pandemonium? When Jesus walks throughout the temple of your heart and mind, what will he find? If you listen closely, you may hear tables that are overturned. If you listen closely, you may hear some flinging chairs. If you listen closely, you may hear some coins that are clattering down the hallway. If you listen closely, you may see Jesus go ransack throughout our entire house, claiming and desiring and longing for righteousness in your life and mine. I wonder that if Jesus comes walking through your temple and mine, what would he find? We only have two options. Either we are rooted in Christ or we are rotten from the ground up. Those are only two options. Are you rooted in Christ? This morning, beloved, if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, can I plead with you? Can I just share with you that all of us are sinners And because of that sin, a righteous God says somebody has to pay. Either you're going to pay for all of eternity or you can accept the free gift of salvation because Jesus, the God-man, came to earth and he died on a cruel cross for all of your sins, past, present, and future. And Jesus died in your place. He was placed in your borrowed grave. And on the third day, Jesus rose to give you life eternal. And the Bible says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In this moment of this invitation, if you've never called on the name of Jesus, today can be the day of your salvation, friend. Please, this is not just preacher talk. I am being as honest as I possibly can. The moment the first note is struck, I want you to come down the aisle, take me by the hand and say, Pastor, I need this Jesus. If you can't make it all the way down, just wave your hand. We'll come running to you. And if you're here today and you're a believer, honestly, what fruit are you developing and producing in your life? Don't jerk Jesus around. Don't joke around with him on this. Seriously, what fruit are you producing in your life? And if it's not the fruit that we've talked about over the last few moments, this good God invites you to come and say, by God's grace, I will forgive you, the Lord says. And I will send you out that door convinced and concerned about the fruit that you develop in your life. A fig tree is supposed to produce figs. A believer is supposed to produce fruit that glorifies God both now and forevermore. May you and I be rooted in Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. And Lord, I pray that you will take these moments and that you will seek and save, that you will retrieve, that you will find that you will invigorate, that you will challenge, that you will motivate. Oh, Lord, that you will bring to our attention the things that we're doing well and bring to our mind those things that we're doing horribly that would cause you to come in and just go ballistic in our hearts and minds and go ballistic in, in, in our lives in church. Oh, Father, we pray that we, we desire to please you more than anything else. Help us to be rooted in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.